Well, Casey was and Garen was beginning. One Robbie going out, one coming in. Kiner and Mitchett could tell, the Thumper and Mel Parnell. And Ike was the only one winning down in Washington. I'm talking baseball, Mazuski, Welcome to the Coaching Kernan Podcast Network. I'm Dave D'Agostino. I'm joined by my co-hosts, Mark Wiley, Will George. This is a day at the yard, common sense pitching with Wiley and Will. We're on episode 89 with the Coaching Kernan Podcast Network, but this is the 11th installment of Common Sense Pitching. Welcome back to the show, guys. We've got a special guest today. Uh, very excited about the guest that you guys are able to bring on today. Uh, we have Seattle Mariners General Manager Jerry DePoto, fresh off a big trade. Jerry, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, guys. Appreciate yeah. it. Um, Mark and Wolf, it's okay. I figured I'd toss a, toss a yeah. softball up to Jerry to start and then let you guys yeah. get rolling with him. Jerry, compliments on the big trade uh, yesterday with Toscar Hernandez. Uh, I think a tremendous talent in baseball. Um, that's a great one for you. But I wonder if you could share with our audience a little bit of all the inputs that go into a trade. Because I think a lot of people sit and they watch the pundits talk about this guy's going here, this guy's going there. And may think it's just as easy as you picking up the phone and saying, "I'll take that guy. I'll give you this guy." Um, can you uh, can you go into a little bit of little bit of detail about what goes into a trade like that? Yeah, I think it's pretty much as easy as picking up the phone and saying, "I'll take that guy. I'll give you this guy." <laughs> but for the most part, you know, I it's like building a puzzle, and there are thirty teams, and each one has a you know has its own set of criteria. There, everybody's got a payroll budget. Everybody has a minor league system that is in some state of development or another. Uh, generally speaking, everybody's trying to put together the best 26-man roster that they can. And, you know, it's uh, depending on where you are in your cycle or on the wind curve, you know, you may find that a player like Teoscar Hernandez, is a, for instance, is, is available. And in this case, it, his availability was based on the fact that, you know, the Blue Jays are, you know, very much in their their win window we just faced them in the postseason they have an excellent team and they are completely right-handed so you know they have a, a, a sizable payroll they needed to move something to create space for for a left-handed hitter to join and i think that's where we came in and you know we were looking for that big bat teoscar we identified early on as as one of the the candidates in that regard and and we lined up with the Blue Jays, and, and fortunately, uh, we we did it early enough in the off season that now we can reassess what our puzzle looks like and, and try to fill in the other pieces. What what does he bring to the table for you guys? You know, it, uh, he hits the ball as hard as anybody in the league. I think uh, top five in in baseball in terms of exit velocities and, and hard hit rates. He is you know, he's thirty years old, so we feel like right in the center of his prime and. Uh, he's physically well conditioned. He's 85th percentile among the fastest runners in, in the league, and he can really throw. So, you know, take that and couple it with a pretty consistent 30-ish homer type of productivity over 162-game season, and he's been a run producer in the middle of very good lineups for a number of years. So, you know, for us, it, it seemed like really his power plays in any ballpark. We feel like he is a perfect fit for what we need, which is corner outfielder who can bang. And it's a, it should fit in our clubhouse as well because he is you know, generally regarded around the league as just a, a fun, affable guy who brings energy to the ballpark every day. And, and that very much fits in the, the club we have here in Seattle. Yeah. Well, go ahead. You had something to add. Yeah, I'll, I'll echo that, Jerry. I cover the Blue Jays and – um, just started covering him in 2020 and have really fallen in love with him as a player, you know, watching him play the game and talking about a kid who comes to play and loves to play. Um, I saw him on a rehab assignment in Dunedin this year, and he played all nine innings five days in a row and got the game-winning hit in the ninth inning twice. And most big league guys, as we all know, are usually gone after, you know, three at-bats for, you know, whatever, after seven innings. And he was out there still playing hard. He made a good – he threw a guy out at third base one night late in the game to help them win. And, you know, just a, a really good all-around player. So it's a good get for you guys for sure. 
know, we, we had so much recon on to Oscar, just that having had guys that have played with him in the past. And, and, you know, he's even a guy that was on our radar a year ago as we came out of the lockout headed into the 22 season. And we were looking for that one more big bat to, to start last season. You know, he was a guy that we inquired on and, and at that time he wasn't available. And, you know, fortunately we were able to, to hit this time, but it's, it's, he fits with us. And, and if you've spent any time around our team with guys like, Luis Castillo and, and Julio Rodriguez and, and Gino Suarez. I mean, these guys all share a lot of similar uh, traits in, in how they go about their business. And, and we felt like Teoscar really was just another in line of the, the fun, affable, personable guys that, that really start to connect with a fan base and, you know, make your team more dangerous on the field. Yeah. You talk about fits. Um... You made a great decision with your managerial choice as well. Uh, seems to have a handle on the clubhouse. Uh, seems to make the right moves at the right times. Um, to discuss with our audience, too, about how you came about deciding upon Scott as your manager, and you have a little bit of history with him as well. Yeah, you know, Scott's a – I was joking around, actually, this week. It, it was his second consecutive year as a finalist for, for the American League Manager of the Year. Last year, he finished second to Kevin, Kevin Cash. This year, he finished third um, to Tito Francona and, and to Brandon Hyde, all of whom have been deserving candidates. And and I, was, I joked with Scott that he's getting worse. You know, he's just going in the wrong direction. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, I, I've known him a long, long time. We, we played against each other in the 90s back in the National League in the years I was with the Mets and the Rockies as a player. Scott was with Houston and San Francisco and the Cubs. And then right at the end of my career with, with Colorado in my final season, Scott came over to the Rockies. And you know, we, we happened to, to be on rehab at the same time in Colorado Springs. And we would drive back and forth to the ballpark together. And, and uh, you know, that's, it's probably when we started exploring, you know, out the, what we thought about baseball and baseball strategy and, and, uh, you know, some years later, he joined our staff when I was working for the Rockies with Will, actually. Um, and we, we talked about the, the different ways that, that you build rosters and, and the way you evaluate or assess players. And, and you know, and then we parted ways. He went off to, to the Rangers as a farm director. I went to Arizona in a player personnel role. And, you know, lo and behold, we got the opportunity to sync back up in Anaheim when I was the general manager there. And he came in to oversee scouting and player development. And ultimately when I got this opportunity, it was, it was an easy choice for me, but we did, you know, interestingly, we went through, you know, the, 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 the interview process to, to go find the, the right manager for our club. And, as I look back on it now, seven years later, you know, our group at that time, the, the, the group that we interviewed went on to have a great deal of success. Our, our finalists were Scott and Dave Roberts. And, you know, and shortly after we hired Scott, Doc was hired by the Dodgers and, and he's had nothing but success in the time since. And we had uh, Jason Baratek and Phil Nevin and Charlie Montoya were our other candidates. And, wow. and they all did a phenomenal job through the, the interview process. And, and I believe that we picked the, the person that fit us best. And, and, and I look back on it now and I'm very glad we did. What, what were some, and of course we're talking about Scott's service um, manager for Seattle Mariners. What set Scott apart? What were some character traits or some strategical things that made him the candidate for you guys? You know, Scott has, he's organized and he's disciplined. You know, he, he sticks with a plan and, it's, uh, I think he's he's got enough of a baseball gut. Scott comes from a background of, of scouts and coaches. His, you know, his family, a number of them, his, his uncle uh, was a 25-year head coach at Creighton University. Um, his his, uh, his other uncle was a, a member of, of various teams, scouting staffs for, I'd say, about 30 years. And... Uh, it's Scott comes from a, a baseball background and, and he's always been invested in, you know, leadership on all levels. You know, he's uh, a big green Bay Packers guy, Vince Lombardi disciple and, and has, has thought, you know, like a, a leader in a clubhouse for, 
all the time that I've known him. And, you know, the, the thing that is, has impressed me most since Scott jumped on board is, you know, I always thought he had good baseball. That's the best way I could put it. He's, you know, strategically, he understood the game. He saw it for a decade behind a mask. He understood the, the, the complexities of the, the batter pitcher matchups and, and, you know, pitch calling, sequencing. Uh, the, the thing that, that is always the question when somebody goes to manage for the first time, especially in the big leagues, is will they adapt to the speed of the game? And you know, the, the most critical part of that is being prepared to make pitching changes at the appropriate times. And, uh, you know, and that's an area where you know, we had, we bumped our toe a couple of times in the, in the early years. And, and ultimately we came up with a system that really works for Scott. And in recent years, especially, I'm not sure that anybody could do a better job of managing a bullpen in leverage situations than, than he and our staff have done over these last few years. Mark, I know you've got a couple questions for Jerry. Yeah, well, you know, it's great to have you on, Jerry. You know, Will and I go way back with you, back to 89 when you were the third-round draft pick out of Common, uh, out of Virginia Commonwealth University. Um, I remember Will bringing you over. to I was a big league pitching coach at the time with the Indians in Tucson, and I remember him after a game saying, hey, I got this young guy. I think you'd like to see him. So Will brought him over. That was the first time I met you and uh, watched you throw. Um you know, it seems like time flies by. That, you know, I think back, it seems like yesterday, then look at all you've accomplished. Um, just to give our listeners a, an idea of where you've been, like I said, you were uh, 1989 third-round pick for the, for the, uh, the Indians. Um, you played in their farm system from 89 to 93, debuted in 93 is, uh, with the big league team, and then – in 94 was uh, a really a tough time for you uh, when you uh, were diagnosed with thyroid cancer and you had surgery. Thank, good, thank, thank God it was uh, successful and you're a cancer survivor. Um, how did that throw you when it hit? You know, what that I look back and then over the, you know, the course of a career like with you guys and I, the, the people that I've encountered in baseball, it, it's funny. It, it's such a, a, it's a spider web of people that you will come across and, and develop relationships with, and it keeps coming around. You know, it's a, Will was one of my first pitching coaches in baseball. You know, Mark was the, the major league pitching coach when I first joined the Cleveland organization. And, you know, I, and I, I think back to all the different people that I continually cross paths with. Uh, you know, that were part of that. And, and that Indians organization at the time, so many of those people still work in prominent positions in baseball and some of them for the Indians. And, and, uh, you know, I jokingly, I've, I've looked back and said, I think I'm better at this job than I was at my first job, <laughs> but the, I, I'm fortunate to have played for, you know, 13 years and, and that met so many good people and, had struggles and had successes and 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 that's not just making trades but in throwing pitches and hanging sliders and and having a good month and a bad month and and it really gives you a great appreciation for the people who coach it and manage it and and put together rosters and 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 most especially the players who go through that those ups and downs it's a you know it's an awesome game that we get to be a part of and you know the 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 struggles, I think, are the time where you learn the most. And I never learned more than in that 94 season. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny you mentioned that about, you know, all the people you meet. How about, you know, we traded you to the Mets. Uh, and and at that time, I don't know if any organization had as much pitching in the minor leagues as we did that, that allowed us to be able to trade you. And I think it was uh, Bob Malicki. Um, I think he went with you to the Mets and, and people used to ask me, I say, they said, well, what was your pitching like in like 94, 95? And I said, well, we had so much pitching in the minor leagues. Look at some of the guys that got traded that ended up in the big leagues with other organizations. You never know. And those are things that you deal with every day. Now, when you're dealing 
with young players, if you happen to trade for a young player, you've got to project, you know, how he'll fit with your organization and whether whether he can help you in the way you need help. You know, I, I think that's right. And I, I look back on, you know, especially those those early days in my baseball life playing with the Indians, you know, when we went to instructional leagues, and I, I know, Will, you were at every one of them. And yeah. uh, the, I, I was a letterman at instructional league. <laughs> <laughs> join, the, join the club, coaching yeah. and playing. <laughs> That's right. I mean, there's, I, I think, four different instructional leagues with the Indians. And, and, you know, by the time we got to the fourth one and you started to see the talent start to build up, and, and I've told this story so many times. I, I can remember now as I, I was drafted, I was a 21-year-old. And, you know, by the time I'm 23 and I'm in my fourth instructional league and you know, I'm, I'm on the verge of, of kind of breaking through and, and I'm now at the upper levels of the system playing in AAA. And, and we're on the backfields and Jim Tomey and Manny Ramirez and Brian Giles and and I start spinning around the field and Kenny Lofton and Reggie Jefferson. And it, it was like a who's who, you know, at that time, Albert Bell was coming back from, from, uh, you know, the, the, the time away from the baseball field and Charlie Nagy and, and Jeff Mutis and Rudy Cienes, just loads of talent. And that, that was just the start because for the five or eight years after that, there were more waves that came through and, yeah. And it really taught me a ton of lessons about building depth in a system and and always having uh, that young talent in reserve because you know what the Indians were able to do for the next ten years was it revolved around that core young talent and and they really they dominated that central division from the time they entered it. Yeah. Well, you know, you know what's funny about that is is that at one time I looked at all the guys throughout baseball probably probably 19, about 2000. And I looked at the guys we had instructionally, guys that had been in our organization, and there were all-star players on other teams that I know that the, the common fan didn't know was an Indian to begin with. Right. It was yeah. crazy. Yeah. You know, David David Bell, you know, got traded away and had a great career elsewhere. So, so many good players. Uh, John it, Casey. Yeah, that's right, Sean Casey. It was uh, things just kept percolating upwards, you know, and it was just it was fun to watch. Unfortunately, I left and after the '91 season, but uh, always admired everything that was done there because, and and I always thought it was done right too. Uh, the player development and the scouting. Well, we had Johnny Goral there. Yeah, you know, he made sure it was right. That's yeah, you know he was he was the first quality control coach ever, Jerry. <laughs> this is this is funny because it's it's I guess it's it's timely. We are currently looking for you know we're doing interviews for uh, to hire a new farm director, and you know we've we've had Andy McKay has been our director of player development. Mm-hmm. You know I hired Andy away from the Rockies. Yep, know, surprisingly enough, yeah. good guy. Uh, you know, He's done an awesome job in setting up what I think is is you know a, a modern player development system that has really built a pipeline for our big league club that we're all really proud of, you know. And Andy is uh, Andy is currently on the, the the road to promotion, so he's he's going to move into a, more of an executive position. And, awesome. Yeah, he deserves it. He's he's had a wonderful run here. So we are in, in the process of, of interviewing candidates for his successor. And one of our, our actually one of our, our best candidates is, uh, is currently in the Indians organization. And he was here in Seattle yesterday to, to visit with the group of us. And, and I asked him, I said, tell me about your background in baseball, the people who've had you know, the biggest impact on, on your career. And the, and the first name he brought up was Johnny Goral. And right. He said, uh, I don't know if you've ever met Johnny Goral. I said, oh. Johnny Goral might have been the first person I ever met in professional <laughs> He was He was the first guy that yelled at you at a baseball in the minor leagues. <laughs> he, he, said, he said, yeah, there's a, he, he said, what are your recollections of, of Johnny Goral? I said, I said, typically coming in with pretty good information delivered in a pretty direct and sometimes gruff way and a yep. led by the, led by the 
reference to Molia. And <laughs> he said, that's hilarious. It's still the same guy. <laughs> said, that's oh, no. Yeah, there's nobody uh, for the last, what, 30 years or something doesn't know who Johnny Gorals if they were connected with Cleveland. Yeah, I, uh, Jerry, I've oftentimes told Danny that leaving Cleveland and being on the outside looking back and working in different organizations, that Johnny never got the credit for doing what he did, which was hold everybody accountable every day to do their job the right way. And he, you know, he was not afraid to yell at me or the manager or the hitting coaches <laughs> and, hey, you know, fix them. You know, this is what you got to do to fix them. But uh, he was he was fabulous, and I learned a lot, a lot, a lot from him. Hey, Jerry, this is how far back I go with Johnny. He was my double A manager <laughs> when I played. And that was nineteen thirty two. Mark was that <laughs> the babe and I were there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, the funny thing is, then I end up coaching with him with the Indians. Uh, but Johnny was uh, actually Johnny taught me how to throw a sinker. It wasn't a pitching coach. Wow. He told me your fastball is a little too straight, Mark. Why don't you try to hold it this way? That's what the pitching guys tell me. And that's how I learned my sinker. Wow. Crazy. Jerry, what was your repertoire as a pitcher? When you start, when you, when you started professional baseball and to the time you finished, how did it change over time? You know, I, I came into pro ball with a, a fastball and a slider and, what I would call as a fledgling changeup. Uh, I, I made it through the minor leagues with a fastball and a slider and what I would call a fledgling changeup. <laughs> uh, maybe the, the I'll, I'll, I'll flash back to my double A season where, where Will was my pitching coach. And, you know, that was the year that, that we probably spent the most time focusing on trying to develop that third pitch. It was really the last year I spent as a starting pitcher and, and I, I can vividly recall, you know, going into uh, an outing against the Williamsport Mets, where uh, yep. you know, I just kind of gave the will, took the joystick, and, and called my pitches throughout the game. And and I, I believe I was on the verge of throwing, you know, a complete game or finishing, you know, eight shutout innings, something like that. And Jeremy Burnett's was hitting for the Mets, and and Will called a changeup on a on a three-two pitch, and I shook it off. It was the first time I shook off the whole game, and I you know kind of nuke Lelouch uh, esque, and and uh, Will you know relate it through our catcher Jesse Levis at the time. Keep throwing it, and and uh, you know I, I ultimately I seeded. I threw the changeup, and and you know Bernie popped it up and and ended the outing, and it was the the most satisfaction I ever had in, in development because I felt like I, I cracked through only to realize that my changeup stunk and it probably wasn't going to be a pitch for me as a, as a major leaguer. And I went to the bullpen and just threw sinkers and sliders until I got to Colorado and kind of introduced a four seamer for the first time, but ne never did develop that third pitch, just changed some of the way I threw my fastball. Jerry, Jerry, I remember that night because when I called the change up, your head almost snapped off looking at me in the dugout. <laughs> like, are you are you freaking kidding me? And I go, just throw it. <laughs> yeah, I, I can I can remember it like it was yesterday because I did, when I saw the, the the wiggles go down, I'm thinking, oh no, man. Oh that, no, that is not what I want to do here, Will. And uh, <laughs> ultimately, you know, bit down on it, and and it showed me that you know if if. If what you can do as a pitcher, and I, I think about this a lot as an evaluator today or building a team, there's so many different ways to skin a cat, the way pitchers go about doing their thing. And, and at the end of the day, if you can create a, a disruption in the timing of the hitter, yeah. that's pitching. That's, yeah. that's how you pitch. No, we talk about it all the time on here. And, you know, it doesn't have to be a perfect pitch. He was sitting dead red. And you got him out on his front foot, and and you got him out, and you know that's that that's such a lost art in the game that we uh, we talk a lot about on here is that guys just don't have that feel to add and subtract and do different things like that, and realize how easy it is. Some it's never easy, but it is easy if you do sequence and have a little creativity and a little bit of guts to do some things sometimes. You know, it's, a, it's funny. Yeah, we, right? like, that's so why we call it common sense. 
yeah. pitching with Riley and Will because we right. feel like some of those things have been lost. Um, you know, I know you, you've you always been interested in cutting-edge ideas and have developed your own systems throughout all the years you've you've been a general manager and been involved with different clubs. How, how have you changed your mindset over the years? Because I know you, you've had – you do a lot of uh, statistical uh, analytics and you do a lot of different things, but, you know, I always still see a lot of common sense with your pitchers. You know, it's still, after all these years, I'm, I'm, you know, just try to adapt with the times and, you know, in the, in the early two thousands, you know, just as I was leaving the playing field and, and moving into, you know, scouting roles and, and front offices, that was, uh, I would say that was like the, the boom in sabermetrics where all uh, many clubs started to, to, to chase statistical evaluation and performance evaluation. And, and I got very interested in that and, and tried to refine the way I looked at players through, you know, the lens of their performance. And, and then, you know, flash forward to the, just these last, you know, eight or 10 years when, you know, I, I guess the the underlying data that we can pull out of modern technology has really become prominent in the way we develop or coach players and things like blast sensors on a bat or, you know, the, the Rapsodo technology for pitchers or you know, even dating back, you know, 12, 15 years ago with the introduction, you know, the first real rush of, of track man usage across the game. Now, my my thought is, and I'll flash back, and I know both of you remember Bill LaJoy. Um, yeah. When I was with the yeah. Red Sox in 2003, 2004, I, I worked with Bill LaJoy, and, and Bill had a long career as a, as a baseball person, uh, general manager of the 84 Tigers. You know, he, he, had, he had a little of that gruff, pretty direct, you know, yeah. but you were going to get uh, feedback and answers to questions. And and I remember sitting in, in my first meeting in a scouting department with the Red Sox, and, and Bill was a special assistant scout at the time. And he was sitting next to me at the first meeting, and they had just given us uh, computers, which was the first time the Red Sox scouting group or, or, or staff was, was introduced to computers. You know, prior to that, they, the, the scouts went out and they, they roughly did it by hand and, and made calls, left voicemails. And, and uh, that was Theo's first year as the GM in Boston. And, and we took the step into you know, the, the modern age, so to speak. And, and Bill sat next to me as we were turning on the computers for our tutorial you know, and, and, and I was two years off the field, three years off the field, and, and, I, and I always had a pretty young look about me. And he, he sits down and, and says, show me how to, how to work this thing. I said, what makes you think I know? <laughs> and, <laughs> and uh, you know, he, we, we opened them up, and, and Bill said, we got to figure out how to get in there. And I said, I said what makes you so curious? He said, he said, that's where the information is, and the information keeps you relevant. And, you know, and I never forgot that. You know, you know obviously, Bill's not with us anymore. But Great advice. Yeah, it's 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 that's the way. You know, the the way is to continue to evolve and to adapt with the game, and to to make sure that you're that you're in tune with what's happening in modern baseball. Most importantly, because that's how the players are wired. You know, they they see the world through that lens, and unless you are able to to meet them where they're at you're never going to be good at what you do, whether you're, you know, a coach or a manager or, or a general manager, you, you've got to be able to connect with your players because they're what the game's about. Yep. How do you balance all that, Jerry, with all the inputs coming your way, not just with decision-making for yourself, but how you help your coaches and the people underneath and around you make decisions to help you out with the, the, you know, inundating, amount of information that you have with analytics. And plus, obviously, there's intuitive baseball people around you. How, how do you make it all work? You know, the, the what you find out is that, you know, I'm going to go back to 2015 now. Uh, I came to Seattle in September of 2015. And, you know, through that time, we we worked very hard to develop, you know, what, what we still today, we reference as our systems and our programs. And and we built a foundation for what we were about. And 
one of our core tenets was that we were going to make, you know, we were going to make decisions based on, on the information that we had access to. So uh, there's, and we've, we've maintained, you know, uh, I guess a focus on that. So all the players that have entered our system, uh, starting with that 2016 draft class and, and young players who we acquired from elsewhere, they were always in, you know, introduced to a decision-making process or a coaching process that was driven by, you know, informed decisions, whether that was data, it was bio, biometric information, it was, you know, statistical analysis. They were always going to get feedback as to the lens we were looking through. So, you know, they knew what we were dealing with or what they were dealing with. And that's the, the organization that they grew up in. And, and as we, as we moved, you know, one of the things that I really wanted to be conscious of is that not every player is wired to receive information in the same way. And, you know, some of them may, may be starved for it. You know, for six years, we have Mitch Hanniger, who you couldn't give him enough. He just wanted to eat it all up. And, you know, Jared Kelnick in our group today is very similar. And, and uh, you know, you had other guys who really just wanted the, the bare bones and they wanted to go play and react. And I'm, I'm, good with both ends of that spectrum. You, you as a staff and, and, a, and a baseball person need to be respectful of how that player plays best and, and then build a system that works for that player. So about six years ago, we started building individual plans for each of our players from you know the, the Dominican Summer League through our major league club. And each one of them had, had something tailored specifically to them from how we were going to coach them and, and improve their physical stuff or their swing or their, 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 you know, their bat angles, anything uh, right down to, you know, the, the advanced scouting and, and opposition. So everything was individualized to make it about that person, you know, that player, because, you know, in, in our group, you know, Gino Suarez may experience something different than Mitch Hanniger. And, and same thing goes for, uh, Paul Seawald, who's ordinarily a, a back-end reliever for us, and Diego Castillo. You know, they, they both have great sliders, and they go about it in a different way. So uh, we tried to make it individual to the player, and I think that wound up being a hit in, in forming a culture here that uh, the players know they are in the driver's seat and that it's not just being, you know, shoved, you know, toward them. They, have, they are part of a, a collaborative effort, and they get to determine how much water is coming through the hose. Yeah, that's Jerry, that's really smart. Like my, an observation, and we talk a lot on here, is that at times you see each player is a different type learner and a different type, uh, you know, what, what they receive where I, I watch games on a lot of nights where I, I see players that are paralyzed, like the paralysis of analysis at the plate or – and, and what they're doing on the mound, they lose that flow and reaction. So what you guys are doing is individualizing is so uh, strategically smart to develop your players so that they're learning at their pace what they need to make them the best players they can be. And so, so much is cookie cut now where everybody's trying to do the same thing, but they don't understand that each guy's an individual still. You know, Jerry, it's, it's, uh, you know, you mentioned Andy McKay before. I will say he's a, he's a good friend of mine. And uh, I was so impressed when you hired him and with all the other things you were doing, I think you couldn't have picked a better guy to get you the the mental aspect part of the game up to speed along with the other things, particularly when you're developing individual player plans. Andy has been, you know, and I, I'm going to give, I'm going to a, a near and dear friend to us all, Dan O'Dowd, who is, uh, uh, there's all dirt roads lead to Dan in my life. At yeah. but, uh, <laughs> you know, Dan, I, I called Dan when we were when we were getting ready to interview Andy and and I asked him, you know, hey, can you walk me through your thoughts on Andy? Because it was at the time an out of the box hire, you know, as a, a, a longtime college baseball coach who was spent the last the previous four years as a as a peak performance, you know, mental skills coach for the Rockies. 
and you know what we wanted to do or, or something like what I just described. And, and in ways it's evolved beyond even my wildest dreams, you know, seven, eight years ago. But when I called Dan, Dan said, Jer, I, he said, I know you don't know Andy, but it will be the most impactful hire you ever make. And I don't care what role he works in. And, yeah. and, and I, you know, these, these years later, you know, like you said, Mark, he's, Andy's become a very close friend of mine in addition to, you know, uh, a, a teammate and, and he's changed the world for us just in his ability to, to help develop a lot of those educational programs. A lot of the, the community that we've created in our system comes from the way Andy uh, sees the game. And no one is better. I, and I, I say this reverentially, and it's part of the reason why he's, he's moving into the position he's, he's moving into. I, I've learned over time. If all you do, all you need to do with Andy is is create enough open space, and then just give him the room to go create. Because you know he he does remarkable things if you just give him you know a bunch of colored pencils and a blank canvas. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I won't I won't tell you I wasn't upset when you took him away from us. He made yeah. my job better. He helped me as well as everybody else on our staff. You know, Andy's one of those guys that. You know, if he sees you sitting in a room working on something, he'll go, hey, is there anything I can do to help? You know, and you're like, nah. it's unbelievable. It's like I, his mind works different than the rest of us, and uh, and he's as creative as it gets. Very, yeah. I, I echo everything you guys say. Yeah, I'm glad we're going to a pitch clock because my fear was if the, if the time in between pitches and the games is enough time for Andy to get bored and move on to something else. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, How do you think those rules will impact the game next year, Jerry? The new rule changes? I'm really looking forward to it. And I guess the things I'm looking forward to most, you know, A, I'm all about the fast workers. I I think, you know, one way to disrupt timing is to to constantly be on the offensive. And, you know, I'll I'll say Mark Burley as there's Mark Burley, it's Kirk Reeder. It's, you know, that the crafty lefty who's throwing, you know, in the mid upper eighties. And, and I, I know that, that Burley threw much harder than that as a younger pitcher, but it's amazing how guys can string out a career and continue to succeed or even dominate against major league hitters simply by never allowing the hitter to get too comfortable and, and always dictate the timing. And, you know, I, I think the, the pitch clock, in addition to just making the game crisper and, and quicker, will do that. It's going to, it's going to help, uh, I think, uh, create a, a better, a better flow to the game. And I, and I really am excited about the, 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 the restrictions on shifting. And, and I, that's going to open up baseball to something closer to, to the, the baseball we played, you know, in my era and before where, you know, it was an active game. And, and there so many over the last 15, 20 years, so many rocket line drives by a left-hand hitter to right field. Is there, and you've got the, the second baseman playing in the point of the shift. Is, and, and they're playing there for a reason. The, the hitters hit the ball there frequently. And, you know, credit to the smart teams. And, and at the time, the, the first mover were the, the, in the non-Ted Williams shift category or the Lou Boudreaux shift was uh you know tampa did a wonderful job of identifying a way that they could create an advantage with a a a smaller payroll team and and like so many other things that happen in sports the rest of the world copycatted you know a good idea and strategy and then i think it just got a little carried away um and now i think we will once again start to celebrate you know the gifted bat to ball hitter who can move the ball around the field and and I, i that's I, that might be a romantic view of what's going to happen, but I think it's inevitable. And, and I also weirdly think that the increase in the size of the bases, you know, I don't know that we're ever going to see teams like the, you know, the 85, 86, 87 Cardinals or those, you know, the eighties teams with the Royals that were built to run and, and, you know, explosive speed athleticism on, on turf, but we might with the bigger bases and, and the shift, you know, band. I, I do think that, that it's going to change the way we see the game over the next two or three years. As a former hitter, I'm sad that I like the, the movement back to the to the regular positions, but I'm sad that the hitters didn't exploit it 
more than they, they could have and should have. Will, will there be a defensive position that you'll have to look at differently from a general manager's roles that may change as we go back to, you know, as you said, the maybe the mid-90s way of playing defense? No question. I think second base all of a sudden becomes a, a much different position than, than perhaps it has evolved into in recent years. And, you know, there are, have always been you know, great defenders at second base, the rangy guy, the, you know, the Colton Wong, the, the Roberto Alomar. It's, there's the, that player, Chico Lean, back in the day. Uh, you know, these are they're fun players to watch. But in recent years, you could really focus your second base on on offense. You know, your second baseman became a banger, almost like a third baseman, and uh, because you were able to hide a, a relative lack of range by appropriately positioning a player in the shift uh, to to counter uh, balance the, his limitations in relation to the hitter's strengths, and 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 I think as a as an industry that allowed us to, to play players at second base that maybe in, in years gone by would not have been able to survive because of the lack of range. And, and uh, I do think that, that starting in 2023, teams have to pay attention to that in a different way than they have in, in recent years or even the last decade. And I don't know that it's going to be immediately uh, – it's not going to immediately affect the personnel on the field simply because – We've we've done this now for you know for a generation, and and it takes time to undo uh, what we've done for a generation. But I do think you'll start seeing you know more athletic, rangy, shortstoppy type players at second base, and and that might that that might show up in more contact orientation, the small ball type player that used to play second base, and uh, and 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 I don't know that that'll be better or worse for the game, but I do think that that is is likely to happen. I will, I will tell you one thing. You have Perry Hill with you guys, and I worked with Perry before the shift. And as the pitching coach, I was astounded with his infield positioning because guys would hit balls off Josh Beckett or something, and I'd think, oh, that's a hit. And I'd look up, and he'd have a guy catching it between his legs. And I'd look over at him, and he'd smile at me because he, he took particularly pride in positioning players. I never talked to Perry after they started doing the shifting stuff because I always thought what he did was good enough. <laughs> I'll say this, and I, and I and Perry Hill, you know, Perry's been in our staff now for three years. We, we picked him up from the Marlins, and, uh, you know, Bone's been in the in the big leagues now for 30 years, and I think uh, his, his experience is kind of second to none. There aren't a lot of coaches around you know, in today's time that, that were, that started coaching as far back as, as Perry. But I think he's the best specialty coach that I may have ever run across. And yeah, I agree. He's just so good at it. And, and I, you know, I, Ron Washington teaching infielders yeah. is renowned and, and, and Wash is a great guy and fun to be around. Yeah. But phone at there's, I've never worked with Wash. So I can't really compare the two. But of, of those I've experienced, Perry is his. The thing about it is the, the the routines that he sets up for players, and you know, every player that plays at the major league level is inherently one of the best players in the world. There's a, you know, it's these. This is the, the best of the best, and and Bone has a way about him where he can talk to that player and and create daily routines that force the player to continue to work on developing, refining, and maintaining skills that for so long, you know, what we watched uh, in the big leagues, guys come to the end of the league sometime about 20 ish years ago, we just generally stopped taking infield uh, and, and players watch their skills start to regress. You know, there's throwing arms aren't as strong two or three years into their big league career. And, and it really just starts to eat into your consistency or the impact you have in the game. You know, Bone doesn't let that happen. He, he holds these guys to a, a standard. They're accountable to it every day. They work their tails off in the pregame. And we've not brought an infielder to Seattle who hasn't improved defensively since Perry became, you know, our, our infield coordinator. And uh, they've done a remarkable job with anything from good young players like J.P. Crawford and, and Evan White, who immediately turned into gold glovers, to 
you know, veteran farmers who, who had, had never experienced anything like, you know, Perry's routines, like Kyle Seeger, Gino Suarez, and, and Ty France, who, who have all seen during their time, they took big steps forward when Perry came on board. He's great. We actually have Perry scheduled to be on one of our other shows, man, on second in a couple of weeks. So um, I'm glad you had those nice words to say about him. I, I had experience with him uh, listening to a clinic way back when, but Jeff Fry, one of our other co-hosts on uh, She Gone, speaks volumes of what Perry Hill did for him as a player coming up to the big. So um, great pickup by you. Uh, Mark or Will, any any more questions for Jerry? First of all, I want to correct one introduction that you did. You said Jerry was the general manager. He's the president. Oh. Of he was the general manager. He's the president of baseball operations now. Oh, well, thanks. That's okay. thing. He, Jerry's married and has three children, and his son, Jonah, is the Kansas City Royals organization. I want to let everybody know that. Yeah. I saw Jonah pitch well out in the fall league, Jerry. You guys got to be proud of everybody. Yeah, he's, he actually just got uh, – he came up to Seattle to, to visit. He, uh, he arrived the other day, and he had a wonderful fall. And, and we yeah. are, we're, we're really proud of him. They won the uh, – they, they ended up winning the league, right? There's I, the, the, the running joke among the, the Royals people is where Jonah, where Jonah DePoto goes, the champagne flows. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That's great. Jerry, Jerry, I did have one question from me and Mark talk a bunch of times on here as a couple old school guys. And, and I have dug into TrackMan and Rapsodo and, and know all the benefits, especially for the kids. Um, do you see with your eyes, Mark and I talk about it, you know, when a guy's really staying behind the ball well and the shapes are well, um, are they pretty close to like the off the chart things that you see in the data? Um, do you see that? Yeah. I mean, like, you know, like I, I remember at one time my, my boss said, gosh, you've kind of seen TrackMan stuff with your eyes. And I went, oh, really? <laughs> you know, when it first, when we first started getting into it, you know, when I would talk about fastballs that had carry and finish through the zone and, uh, you know, late depth and breaking balls and, and how guys stayed behind the ball really well or whatever. Um, and, I, you know, I think that there are some correlations with what we see and the data just backs it up, like, to make it a 1,000% correct, you know? Oh, I think, and, and both of you guys will remember these pitchers that then, you know, I, I, I think both of you coached them at one point or, or at least coached and or evaluated them. You know, back when we were in those early Indians years, we had a pitcher named Tommy Kramer, and yeah, you know, yeah, Tommy, Tommy was, uh, he he was one of the first guys that I can recall having seen in my minor league existence that could just ride a high fastball. Yeah, and, yep. You know, it's like down to Tommy was like the belt. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a but he was in an era where everybody threw down. Tommy succeeded but when he threw up and uh that i look back on it now and i and i think about the the he would have been a, a track man darling he would have been an advanced you know uh metrics darling for the way he could backspin a ball and yep. uh, that he stood out to me and then you know another one when we were during our rockies years you know i think at one point when we were all there together you know we our closer was brian fuentes and, yep you know and Fuentes had an, he had an awesome changeup, but the what made the changeup you know more awesome? It was like a screwball changeup, but the the ride that he created on his fastball. Yeah. You know, when, when he threw the fastball up and the changeup came out of plane and and he could really just peel it off. But that that combination, you could see it with your eyes what he was yeah. doing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, he too. This is he predated. A lot of the advanced, you know, again the 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 data oriented look at how a fastball works or how stuff plays based on spin and and you know the things that we can look at scientifically today, and, and it didn't take a rocket scientist to see and, and know that that's what Fuentes yeah. was doing. And and I yeah, go back in my childhood. Like... Now that's that was so many of the guys that that you know that was Jim Palmer. You know. It, yeah. it was, there's yeah. so many guys over time that uh, Chris, John Sutton that, that yeah. was great at it. And 
and you knew that they were great at it. You just didn't consider it until now when you have information to back it up. Did you ever see that that 17 strikeout game of Bob Gibson? How many high fastballs he threw? It was unbelievable. Nobody hits. You know, I got there's a former teammate of mine uh, in Colorado in the 90s, John Vanderwall. And uh, Vandy and I were actually texting yesterday. And, you know, he, he scouted for a while after he finished playing. And now he's, he's back home coaching youth baseball in, in Michigan. And, uh, and yesterday we were texting back and forth about, you know, his observations from watching this, the, this past season as a fan, you know, just watching what's happening in baseball. And, you know, he's talking about the, the, the inability for hitters to catch up with, with fastballs. And, and I said to him that, that, you know, that's every era, you know, there's, unless you're Vinny Castilla, nobody really catches up with the high heater. And especially when a guy can run it and ride it with that backspin, it's, it's, it's always been a toxic match for a hitter and, and, and you're never able to climb that ladder. And, and for guys that are doing it today at a hundred miles an hour, there's, it, it's, I don't think it's really, it's just harder, you know, but when the average fastball is, you know, four or five miles an hour harder than it was 20 years ago, it's, it's all relative. No one's ever been able to to hit that high fastball. You know, when Bob Gibson was pitching, when Jim Palmer was pitching or, you know, the, the, the pitchers who thrive on it today, it's, it is, it's a pitch that if you can master riding at the top of the zone and really hit that top rail, uh, you're going to succeed in, in every year. That's, that's good. Jerry, you've been very generous with your time today, almost an hour you've given us. Uh, Mark, any last questions for Jerry before we head him out? No, I'm just so happy we get to have I have more questions. But we'll need to do it again. we got to bring him back. Jerry, you were phenomenal with the interview. We appreciate you coming on. And you, you had to come on Coaching Current. With all the good work you've done, you had to come on our show for me to demote you from president to GM. I, I appreciate you. Uh, giving us your time and great answers. And um, Mark and Will, obviously, the, the guests you bring on are, are true blue and have a sense of reverence for you guys. So we appreciate you as well. But, um, Jerry, where can we find you on social media uh, so our, our, our audience can locate you and support you? And uh, we'll certainly be rooting for the Mariners this year. You know, outside of the Mariners, and this is mostly by choice, I, I, I washed myself of social media. <laughs> There's that. My general thought is that uh, that as long as I'm not looking, I won't find the thing that I don't want to find. <laughs> I, I, I respect social media. I, we, we connect with our players through a lot of you know in-house channels and such, but I choose not to get involved myself because it, it's a dangerous thing for me. <laughs> you're, you're talking to kindred spirits. If, if these guys didn't have me running a Twitter account for our Coaching Kernan Network, I'm not on myself. So, But uh, our audience, make sure that we support the, the Seattle Mariners this year. Uh, president of the Seattle Mariners, Jerry DePoto. Jerry, great job with the Mariners. Great job on the show. Mark and Will, thank you for your time. This is episode 89 of the Coaching Kernan Podcast Network, a day at the yard, common sense pitching with Wiley and Will. And you guys added to the baseball IQ of our audience once again. Thanks, guys. Especially with Mickey and the Duke.